Okay, well, hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick Milliken from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it is a real, a real treat uh, to have my friend David Swinson with me today. He's going to be talking about his wonderful new book, Sweet Thing. Um, and we were just, you know, David and I, every time we chat, we always kind of nerd out on on music, you know, and what you're listening to and the soundtrack and and all this. And we were just talking about, and then I promise folks we'll get into the book quickly, but we're talking about this great band called the Dream Syndicate. Um, and you were just saying how you booked them early on in Los yeah, Angeles. in the 80s. I don't even remember what year um, at Bogart's nightclub in Long Beach, California. But yeah, they were like that album that uh, we were talking about, Days of Wine and Roses, is right. uh, one of my all-time favorite albums. And then we were discussing 45 Grave yeah. before we went mm -hmm. on here. And there is a link there because uh, Paul Cutler, you know, the really wonderful musician, guitar player from that band, played in Dream Syndicate for a few of their records later. So... Anyway, the only reason I bring this stuff up, folks, is because as kind of a segue into our talk here today, um, you know, David, for many years, was a, a, a concert promoter and a booker for um, several really, you know, legendary venues in Los Angeles, right? I mean, Fender's, Ballroom, and, mm. uh, and Bogart's. Um, I don't know, maybe just say a few words about that, David, and then will transition into your the the police career the law enforcement career it was actually long beach california um but it started when I, when i got out of college with a degree in film and I, I really thought that i'd be a screenwriter and um and as it usually happens you know when you meet a girl things changed and this girl got me into the whole alternative punk rock scene and, and um uh, a couple of years later we opened a, a record store in seal beach california on main street and it there was like zed records which was the premier alternative punk rock record store like in long beach and and then slug records which was my record store uh, record store and um we ended up having, you know, autograph, hosting autograph sessions and stuff with bands and would have kids back then had nowhere to go, you know, for music or anything, you know, like concerts or anything. I mean, there was Orange County and then Los Angeles and Long Beach was pretty much in the, you know, nowhere zone for that. And the lines were so long that the city, you know, all these kids with Mohawks and goth and, you know, everything, you know. And the city of Seal Beach, very conservative city, just really didn't like that. And we didn't last, you know, we didn't, we lasted a couple of years. And, but in the time I had made connections and um, I had found a place called uh, Fender's Ballroom that holds about 1500 people and had enough money saved up that I could afford to um, get a first band, which happened to be the Violent Femmes, mm. and, um, but had no advertising budget. And I didn't tell them that, but I, I ended up, uh, and this was before the guy we were talking about, Victor Gayslam. I ended up, who did my flyers, um, I ended up getting like 1,500 flyers printed and did some guerrilla marketing and it more than sold out. It oversold and it was a sweat box and it was like incredible. Yeah. And so it all started from there and one show after another and then, then I you know, uh, discovered Bogarts, which was a, a meat market, you know, dance club. And um, I talked to them to let me have just Sunday night. And they gave me a Sunday night. And that Sunday night did better than their Friday, Saturday. So it wasn't long before I got, you know, seven nights a week. And uh, I and then I worked there full time and did, didn't do anything at Fenders anymore. Hmm. Or Melody Dance Center. And then... Um, just ended up getting a budget and having like an ad in Los Angeles Times and uh, LA Weekly and Orange County Register. And it was just hugely successful. Wow. Now, were places like the Cuckoo's Nest going on at this at this same time? 
Cuckoo's Nest really wasn't around at the time of Bogart. They had closed down at the time of Bogart's. There was um, obviously the the you know the whiskey, the Roxy, the Club lingerie, coconut teaser, Orange County. Because you're getting um, into the metal years now, right? The hair metal starting to come in. Oh my gosh, yeah, bookends <laughs> and roses, yeah. But um, Orange County is just escaping me. There were a couple incredible clubs there. And it's just escaping me. And Cuckoo's Nest was in Orange County. Um, and I just don't remember the names of the clubs. Santa Monica Civic would have bigger shows, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes those bands would want to do something else. And but you they would not let you advertise, but you could do word of mouth. Um, mm. you know, like some of the bigger bands. Um and again, you're you're testing my brain here because I <laughs> it'll come to me during the course of our conversation, but I'm not remembering it right now. Right, right. But I have um, a lot of good bands like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, we're, we're going to get to get to the books and your and the second, well, third, third or fourth act of your career, really. Mm -hmm. uh, what and then you left Los Angeles. Um, and went to DC. When would this have been in the early 90s or late 80s? And, yeah, I, I ended up finally doing getting a, a film made that I developed and then co-produced and then um and then getting the rights to a couple of really good books like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And then it it just left a real bad taste in my mouth. And I had always believe it or not, I always wanted to be a cop, you know, and um, I got to the point where I, I wanted a retirement. I wanted insurance. I had insurance, but it cost up, you know, the wazoo for it. And um, and I wanted to be a writer. And um, you know, at that time, I was reading Lombard and stuff like that. And so I thought it'd be cool to be a cop and you know learn about crime and you know be a detective hopefully become a detective and then um and continue to write and and um so in 93 is when I got real serious about it and quit smoking and uh started running and doing sit-ups and push-ups and then I didn't apply anywhere else except Washington DC because I was home base from and I, I went to high school there and I was raised there and between countries and um and uh, believe it or not, despite my background in punk rock and alternative music, they they accepted me. And, you know. So you I, went to the you went to the academy and in 1994, October 94. And so you would have been older than the average. Uh, I was cadet, right? I mean, you would have been what yeah. in your early 30s or late 20s? Early 30s and wow. um, very early 30s. And um, but. I'm I'm a beyond, I'm I'm giving myself some accolades here. I kicked their ass, most of their asses, you know, as far as like physical, you know, you know, a lot of those guys, they were and some of them like could outrun me, obviously, and all that. But I was an incredible runner, you know, um, and I could do a hunt, I could drop and do 150 push-ups and 300 crunches and all that. But um, you know. Uh, so at my age, you know, there were guys in their mid twenties that you know I, I was right up there with, and it sort of pissed them off. But they were they're friends for life right now. I mean, they're still my friends. Yeah, right. And so, um, tell tell us a little bit about about your career. You started off, I'm sure, you know, paying your dues, doing the as a patrol cop officer yeah. in uniform for a while, and then um, did you? I mean, ultimately, you worked. Homicide, correct? Actually, um, that's a weird story. I ended up getting into major crimes and assisted with a lot of high-profile homicides. When I was given my detective badge by then Chief Ramsey, who personally gave it to all of us after the um, our class, and he would give out the assignments. Um, I was really good at what I did, and um, he knew I wanted to stay at doing what I, I was doing as an investigator and and he jokingly said swinson homicide and i go oh my face dropped and i'm going you know most people want to be in a homicide but i i didn't and um and i go yes sir and i start walking back to the, the seat and then he goes swinson just kidding 
you know, SID, you know, Special Investigations Division. And I go, thank you, sir. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I mean, I had my share of like homicide investigations, but nothing like what those homicide guys go through, man. They're like, they're war dogs. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as a way of kind of getting, you know, getting into the book, and there's, there's so much to talk about in this book. Um, you know, just briefly, uh, most of the people that are watching will be familiar with your the trilogy with Frank Marr, uh, <laughs> and uh, which um, Frank has a, uh, a small role in this book. You know, it's kind of obviously this is set in uh, kind of late 1999. It's right, you know, right before the turn of the century, obviously. And but, you know, when I was reading this book, it struck me so much that. I can't think of another 20 year period in time that seems like a different world, um, you know, and it's the, you know, the acceleration of, of, of things, especially technology and its impact, man. I mean, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, my gosh, this is only 20, you know, 23 years ago now. Yeah. And, and it is, boy, um, it seems like a grittier world. It seems you know, um, there's just so many things about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about about your decision to to set the book in this particular point in time. Well, when I was originally when I originally started writing it, um, you know, there was COVID and all this stuff, and um, I, I really didn't want to get into that and right. you know a time frame involving that. Um, and I also didn't want, and things, and and after I retired, a lot a lot of things change, you know, um, with respect to narcotics and, you know, what was popular on the street, and, um, and the whole thing with, you know, I mean, um, computer investigations and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I I wanted to stay with a time I knew well, you know. And also, I like the idea of, um, you know, time before everyone thought the world was going to shut down with Y2K. Right, right, right. And, you know, that whole thing. And especially the police, we really, you know, we were thinking the worst, you know, that, you know, that it's going to be like, a, you know, anarchy like in the streets. Looting and anarchy and everything. And so um, I just like, in something about 1999, you know, I, I don't know, maybe Prince, I don't know, <laughs> but you have to excuse me, I'm drinking a Coca-Cola and it's like making me belch, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like 1999. Oddly enough, I mean, uh, the second girl was originally 1999 and my editor, Josh Campbell said, does it have to be in 1999? And this was way before COVID because it came out in 2016. Right. I said no, no, it, it doesn't, and so I ended up having to change a lot. And so I've always liked 1999 for some weird reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, I just, I mean, there's so many things to get into. You know, um, it seems in many ways like it's the book is a is a love letter to to cops in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot of real, uh, you know, and, and sort of the well, we'll get into that. Um, but there's the there's the relationship between uh, the politics that was going on in the time at the time, and the department, you know. And you you write interestingly about that, and you get a sense that there were some cops who kind of chose chose rank over, you know, maybe over dedication to the job, or that was the the priority. And then you had kind of working stiffs like your your uh, protagonist in the book Alex Bloom um, who's a homicide detective and you know we read about him and he's just like struggling with this massive caseload and uh, he's just nose to the grindstone mm -hmm. um, it, it, there's a it's a real interesting climate that you know that you read about within the within the law enforcement would you say that's kind of accurate or? Yeah, there are a lot of, uh, I've worked with some incredible officials who like um, are hard workers. And I mean, choosing rank 
you know, I mean, it is like a a calling with, if you want to go rank or you want to go uh, narcotics and just stay an officer or become a detective. You, you, you know, the route for a detective is officer, investigator, detective. And, you know, for rank, it's, you know, officer, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, you know, commander and, and go, going on. And, um, but when you're talking about, again, I mentioned is like homicide detectives, you know, they, um, yeah, I mean, their caseloads, especially in 1999, yeah. I, I don't want to get this wrong because my buddies will kill me, but I think 99, we, DC was the murder capital, but I'm not sure. And that's a terrible term, but you know, it was true. There were a lot of murders, but even if it wasn't, there was so many murders. It's like, you know, keeping up that caseload is phenomenal. And there's, you know, I mean, when you there were rotating shifts. I mean, I can go on. It's just like it's it's grueling. Right. Now, Alex, uh, Alex Bloom, Alexander Bloom, um, tell me a little bit about him. Uh, was he, how long, had he been in the back of your mind back when you were doing the Frank Marr books as well? Was he kind of waiting in the wings in your imagination, or is he somebody who came later? Um, well, he came later. Yeah. Um, and he was, he, he came about more, you know, when my mother who's an Ashkenazi Jew was and um I just wanted to have this Jewish character you know she passed away from um, ovarian cancer but um and she was suffering dementia so I I really wanted to bring something like that in so it started with that and then it sort of builded with the character and it's Blum <laughs> is it Blum a lot of people get it wrong that's and right I, I and, even and in the actually... book yeah, you established that in the book too. Yeah. I, I, but no, I mean it's easy, easy to get wrong, but um, yeah, like you know the horror thing, Blumhouse that make all the is it yeah. is it Blumhouse? Yeah, make some good films, but um, yeah, sort of sort of came like that, and then you know like as we've been you know like we've been talking you know I think years ago is like a lot of the books I I write big begin with a playlist. And so it really didn't even take form until um, I had the idea for Alexander and and I think the mother was going to play a much bigger role than she does now because um, it's just a little too much. But I developed a playlist and then it came up with uh, the story idea. And um, well, I didn't really come up with a story. I write by the seat of my pants. So the story you know, ended up writing itself. And you know, sweet thing, the Van the Van Morrison song mm -hmm. that, the was, too. that the Water Boys covered, and I think we established that we were both at the Water Boys concert mm -hmm. at the Wiltern Theater yeah. for uh, Fisherman's uh, Blues. Blues, tour. yeah. Wow. I know, great, isn't that weird? What a great point in time to see them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still, you know, Michael Scott. Mike Scott is. Still pretty active. Yeah. Yeah. I think he actually wrote a memoir. I don't know if you ever, oh, I, I haven't read it, but I'd like to pick that up. Yeah, I would too. Um, so what was it about Sweet Thing that sort of inspired you? Just not so much the lyrics, but the tone of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. just the way, you know, Van Morrison and actually, the thing about the Waterboys, their cover of it is they really stay true to Van Morrison in the song they didn't try to do their own version of it they stayed true to van morrison almost to the t except that's mike scott singing and the way they sang sweet thing you know and then repeated it and repeated it's it just there was something there that was just um really beautiful but then you know sort of femme felt fatalish about it but that's not what the song is about, but in my head, it's what it became. Yeah. Well, um, it strikes me that the book, you know, uh, I kind of read it, you know, Sweet Thing, you know, it it's an intoxicant. You know, you could look at it that way. 
And we have this wonderful character in the book, Celeste, who is, you know, this, uh, wow. I mean, she's the, the classic sort of tragic, vulnerable, um, fragile, junkie, chic, you know, just irresistible <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, to a certain to a certain type of guy, you know, um, and uh, Blum. T- talk a little bit about Celeste and where she comes from. I There's got to be a personal connection there somewhere. Um, or maybe not. No, there maybe is, but not like me falling like Alexander did or even like getting close. But as far as like the uh, the personality, there was this, uh, uh, when I was in plain clothes at the 3rd District in Washington, D.C., there was this um, prostitute um, who was a heroin addict um, who would frequent the 14th and U area. And, um, and despite the, you know, the pock marks and the, you know, the rotting teeth and all, there was something, and Celeste doesn't have any of that, but there was something really not only tragic about her, but beautiful at the same time and, and strong. Uh, I mean, weak, obviously, to be addicted to heroin, but there was just something that, you know, you, you want to help her, you know? And I, I did try to help her. And I, to this day, I don't know whatever happened to her, but um, I'd, I'd never give money or anything like that because I knew where the money would go. But, you know, you know, uh, food and stuff like that. and you know, um, and her name was Celeste, you know, um, so that's where, where she came from, but um, that's really, but she was from the street, lived on the street. This, this Celeste does not. Is there any way, would there be any way to track her down? Or do you think she's probably? Oh, I'm dead? sure, you know, but uh, I'm sure she's not alive. Probably dead. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe not. Maybe she cleaned up. I, I have no idea. That'd be wonderful if she cleaned up. But, Wouldn't that be great? Um, I mean, when I last saw her, I, <laughs> I was, uh, she was bad off, so I don't know. Right. It's sad. It's really sad. So, I mean, let's just kind of talk a little bit about the, the basic plot. And there there is a, there is a classic noir uh, element in this book. Um, so Alex and his partner, Kelly, Kelly Ryan, who's also a really interesting character that I'd like to ask you more about. Um, they show up at a at a crime scene, and um, uh, while while they're looking around, he comes across a Polaroid. Alex does uh, that is a picture of the you know the deceased guy with hanging out with his former uh, confidential informant, right? And uh, in classic noir, he, he, that's the opening step. He makes a he makes a decision, which is he pockets it and he doesn't show his partner right away. Um, and really, that's the first step in the kind of slow. The cycle starts moving. Bad decisions, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It start to go. It's starting to go. Um, and it's just a classic, classic setup in a lot of ways. Um, some of these little details about, you know, finding Polaroids and things like that, um, are those taken from from real life? Oh, I, I never pocket evidence, but well, not that you would pocket evidence. Yeah, no, I mean, but yeah, there, you know, again in 1999, that's what I liked about it too. Is you know, I mean, or in the 90s, you know, um, what, what do you mean, like um, finding evidence, like Polaroids and just details know. like that? Yeah. Oh yeah, photographs were important. Uh, you know, in homicide investigations, robbery investigations, um, when you're doing, you know, when you're on the scene of a homicide, those are very important. You don't necessarily take every photograph, but, um, you know, everything is, um, you know, might mean a lot of, you know, photographs might mean something, you know, their connections and stuff like that. But, um, if, if you're doing a search warrant related to a homicide or, 
robberies or you know meaning like armed robberies or any kind of robberies and, and you find polaroids or photographs with with their with the suspect and other people you know you you know you want to establish who these other people yeah are. who the other people are and you know stuff like that is you know yeah what tell us why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about the about the basic story and then we can get into it a little bit deeper nah. um <laughs> um well you started it well i mean just with a homicide thing and um and then him pocketing that polaroid and then trying to track down um arthur his confidential informant and during the course of trying to track him down you know he um, obviously finds celeste who lives with his former informant and um and um and things turn from there you know he makes a couple of really bad decisions and um and then I don't want to give up spoilers, you know, what yeah. happens, but um, it's really about like just in the academy, there were three things we were that were grilled into our heads that will get you all the time. And that's sex, drugs, and money, you know, and um, and to, for Alexander, it wasn't really about sex, you know. It, it became that but um it was just um this odd desire to want to rescue this woman who maybe didn't need rescuing and uh then falling from there yeah he seems like a like a romantic in a lot of ways yeah I and mean, he's a loner you know yeah never married you know, really doesn't have a girlfriend, and, you know, um, I mean, takes care of his mom the best he can. I mean, she's in Richmond, which is an hour and a half away from him, so he does what he can. And she's in a nursing home, not a nursing home, but a assisted living home. And, um, you know, so he's he's pretty much a loner, and his, his partner, who is more of a wife than a wife could be, is Kelly, um, without the, you know, without the, there's nothing else. It, it, they're not, you know, like having a relationship or anything like that. Right. Uh, um, but he spends the bulk of his time working with her, you know. <laughs> so there's, they have a really good relationship. It seems like there's a real, there is an intimacy there that's not not sexual, but mm -hmm. it's. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about it, um, which is the kind of the the partner relationship mm -hmm. when you're a cop um there's there's almost a, a sacred quality about it because you get the sense that kelly you know alex you know falls hard for celeste which is established very early on so we're not giving away any spoilers there but throughout the scent throughout the book you get the sense that kelly really knows the score yeah she knows what's going on um and uh, she really protects her partner in a lot of ways. And there's there's like a line, you know, is she going to cross the line to protect him? And that's very interesting mm -hmm. dynamic that's played out in the book. I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, because I, I tried to do that. And um, it is a, you know, you spend as a cop, you spend oftentimes more time with your partner than you do your spouse so they basically are your it, it's a marriage you know it's like without cheating i mean not, well not can't be a marriage like uh, it is like a marriage um and it's i mean the relationship is just um i, I don't know how to explain it it's just um they're a part of your life and they're a huge part of your life but you're also working in a job where um that's so demanding and um anything can happen at any time that um your partner's you know 
has your back you know is there that sense of um of going through shared experience together you know sh you know on a regular basis you know shared kind of life and death situations together and how you emotionally handle that and support each other and all that stuff is there I'm sorry, I, I, I missed. I think no. I was just saying, is it is it kind of have to do with going through these experiences? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Now and, um, there's yeah. a really interesting thing about Alex too that we read is that he early on, uh, when he was a, a rookie cop, and I thought this is a really key moment in the book. We learn about where he was uh, stabbed at a uh, you know he went to a domestic dispute call. And he didn't wait for backup, and he got stabbed, and he, you know, could have could have easily died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Important, uh, important moment in the book. Um, but uh, yeah, t tell me a little bit also about about the prose style that you adopted in this, because I, I found it really interesting. There are parts where it's you know it's very clipped, very terse. Um, it almost has this sort of uh, repertorial vibe to it. Was that something that you consciously kind of adopted, or no? It never. It's never conscious the way it, when I write. Um, yeah, it just sort of happens naturally. It's like um, again by the seat of my pants, and just like um, it's. It's how I th I think, you know, mm. and um, it just comes out. And also, when the character is developed, um, it it takes on you know a a different voice too. Obviously, you know his voice or her voice, and um, so no, that was not intentional at all. But I I, I always I love short chapters. Yeah, <laughs> for me, I can read long chapters and, you know, you know, other people's work and stuff like that. I love short chapters and I don't. And the chapter ends naturally, too. And sometimes I'm amazed. I go, wow, you know, I just ended it. You know, it's just <laughs> like, OK, good, good. That's done. Um, and it, it's sort of that's not intentional either. It just sort of happens. I can't explain it. I don't know why. They end up always ending it like after five, six, seven pages, but they never really go beyond that. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's weird. Who are some of your um who are some of your influences as a as a writer? Um, there are too many living ones to to mention, and I'll always miss somebody, and they're all friends of mine, so I don't want to mention all of them. I I I my my major influences um as a writer you know and i've read it so many times is um you know harper lee's to kill a mockingbird um because that just is everything from courtroom drama to suspense to you know um you know social injustice to you know i mean everything you know and mystery um and and i'm a real fan of um you know, like um, Higgins. Uh, in fact, I really had to reread the Friends of Eddie Coyle uh, for my scene that I was going to get into that was um, involved surveillance and and dial uh, not primarily almost all dialogue, no action because you can't because they were in a car, right? Uh, Alexander, and so how do I show action action with the undercover cop in the strip joint? And so I, I reread The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is primarily dialogue. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and uh, how he just moves that story and dialogue, just, you know. Yeah. So that that's a huge influence. And then I, I love G.K. Chesterton, and, you know. I'm reading right now, I'm reading David Joy's uh, Those We Thought We Knew. And I'm oh, just, yeah. I'm blown away, you know. Yeah, what a, what a writer. Yeah, I mean, he's on the cover of my book, which is I've never met him. I don't, I don't, oh, you I, have? never met him, don't know him. And he just, you know, gave me like that blurb. And it's just that when you, you're a fan of somebody and 
they do something like that it just blows you away as an author yeah no he's a he's a really major talent oh yeah <laughs> super nice guy too yeah oh yeah i hope to yeah. meet him someday yeah i'm glad you mentioned the strip the strip club that appears in the in the book um based on a real place by chance yeah yeah <laughs> a couple of places and i have been to um once in my career i was at a strip club there because there was a stabbing um i had never been in a strip club after that i've never been to one and then when i i knew i was i was gonna be writing a, a couple of scenes involving a strip club i knew i had to go so i got my backup this guy um who i was uh who um believe it or not was like um uh, an agent in, in internal affairs so I, I knew he was you know very safe well not so much maybe but he was safe nothing at all happened but um so I did have to do some research and go and you know I, there was a big difference between a strip club in 99 and now in 99 a lot of them really were um had substance abuse problems the bulk of them and um, now, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they, uh, there are some that don't, because I'm sure there are, but a lot of them are mothers. They go to college, you know, um, very strong, capable women. And, you know, I, I remember asking one, I say, you know, I, you know, why do you choose to do this? Well, I, I can make a lot of money and I, I can go to college and, you know, it's my body. I can do what I want with it, you know? And, you know, and there's not, I'm not going to say there isn't because there, there probably is in certain places. The ones I went to there really um, wasn't like uh, prostitution or anything like that, but I'm sure there's a lot of strip clubs where there is. Right. Um, so I wanted to like have sort of a club like in more 1999 and I really obviously I couldn't travel back in time but so a lot of that was based on the one I went to uh, for the stabbing and I, I really was only there for a couple hours but then I wanted to learn uh, about you know strippers so I had yeah. to go <laughs> So, so it had much more of the uh, desperation addiction element to it, mm -hmm. and that's interesting. And so now it's almost like they have, you know, IRAs and <laughs> you oh know, gosh, yeah, they're investing plans and, and oh my god, yeah, yeah, they're like investors. They like invest and they travel, you know, and they do well. You know, I'm not saying everyone in nine in the '90s were you know addicts and you know there were probably i don't know i never you know i didn't like I, I don't know but i'm sure there were very yeah women that just that's what they chose to do to you know make money right right um you know and addiction obviously is a big part of uh part of sweet thing you know and it has multiple different facets to it there's a mm -hmm. obviously the addiction to drugs there's the um but also addiction to to work you know, mm -hmm. it seems to me. Would you, you agree? Know. I mean, well, I don't know. Um, I love that thing in in detect detective fiction that riff about, you know, the detective doesn't work the case so much as the case works the detective. Mm -hmm. Kind of like that sentiment. That that's true. It's like a book. I mean, the, the book works. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's very true. And yeah, I mean. I don't think you choose to be a, a workaholic as a detective. I, I think if you had your choice, you wouldn't be, you know? And there are certain aspects of the job that are very addicting, you know, like um, uh, sometimes the adrenaline, sometimes um, just the chase, you know, or the mystery, you know? And, uh, but I don't think, well, there's a lot of overtime. So, I mean, that, that can be appealing to people too, but I don't think that's initially why you do it is for, you know, for that. Um, and 
but you it really can suck the life out of you you know uh, yeah then the need to compartmentalize the different worlds is that a factor um yeah yeah, yeah. definitely do you think that um just in general and I, I realize these are generalities but do you think that the police culture has or the the climate and law enforcement has changed a lot in these 23 years. Oh my God. Yeah. With the iPhone, everything changed. Um, there've always been bad shootings and it's terrible to say good shooting, but I'm talking about when I say good shooting, it's a, a, a justified shooting. So justified is a better word, not good. Um, um, but the iPhone changed everything you know that when they started capturing things and the thing is is when it's a justified shooting you really even when you capture that on an iphone and there's an outrage you know it's, it's obviously sad when a life is taken but first of all you're not in the officer's shoes um and secondly you don't know what happened that led up to that um I mean, it, it's obvious if, if you capture a, a shooting and you, you see the the um, the bad guy or bad gal pointing a gun, then that's, you know, without a doubt, there's no question. But oftentimes you don't see that you, when you first, you know, you just see the, the you know, the end of it or um, you don't see what led up to it. So... So that ch changed a lot of things, and um, I can see where it, like, a lot of cops, you know, I don't want to say fear, but might be weary of, like, um, something happening, and then uh, it's going to, it gets captured like that, and it changes their lives, you know? Right. Um, so you, you don't really want that to happen of course not um, because if it is justified it, it can, still can ruin you in today's climate you know yeah um, but there are, i'm not saying that i mean there are bad cops where things are are you know they're just bad shootings all around and, you know we've seen that you know there have been several cops and you know uh and you know law enforcement um people not necessarily you know like um police officers, it could be federal or whatever, that have gone to jail, you know, and deservedly, you know. In in the book, uh, I wanted to ask you, there's, uh, I know, I can just sense that a lot of this stuff is personal. Um, do you remember when cops were issued the Nextel cell phones? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I, I like was so thrilled when I got mine and I was in intelligence section. I go, I got a Nextel. I got a Nextel. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Cool. It, I mean, some of the cops are like, ah, shit, this means I'm accessible all the time. They can reach Yeah, that me. too. But no, you I know. was excited, you know, because I was, I was a, you know, rookie detective and all that, investigator at that time. And, um, you know, but yeah, no, I can see where that, they, you know, like, oh, man, now I got to like, that happened later. It's like, uh, you know, especially with pagers, you know, you can't turn them off, you know, and they got to be on, you know. <laughs> Now, when when was it that um, was it during this time? Um, you know, I mean, nowadays it's like every street corner is under under cameras. I mean, there are cameras everywhere now. Yeah. At this point, not so much, right? I mean, you're starting to see them a little bit uh, in '99. Were they starting to was that starting to become a, a thing? Well, they were around, uh, especially around. With homes, you know, yeah. um, and and stuff like that. There was surveillance and personal surveillance and, you know, um, um, it really helped when I used to investigate burglaries. That's what I became really good at is burglary investigations. And because the thing I loved about burglary is those burglars, the ones that were busting in to, to places, um, they had their ear to the curb. They knew everything. They knew who shot such and such at that corner. They knew who was dealing, they knew the crack houses, they knew, you know, 
where I mean, where all the obviously where the stolen property was going, which led to other things, which led to organized crime, which led to everything, man. So I love that. And uh, it was real helpful, obviously, with offices and buildings. They had their surveillance cameras and stuff like that. Not so much on corners, you know, or anything like that. But if there was a major building, um, you know, office building, there there was surveillance that would cover, you know, a corner or something like that. Right. But yeah, it was, it was around, man. Wow. Um, do, you, do you miss it at all? Yeah. Do Aspects of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, would I um, want to go? Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, I would. I'd, I'd go through it again. Not now, <laughs> in my age, but um, yeah. What's uh? What do you What are you planning next? What's your next uh, book? Um, the working title is "How to Heaven." And I've always been like, um, landscape is always like, you know, I mean, like Washington, D.C. is as much character as my characters and in my head. And so when I moved upstate to this small town and uh, which where there are eight police officers and one detective and the chief um, surrounded by farmland and bisected by the Erie Canal and stuff that did something to me and I'm thinking man this would be really cool and and so I had this idea obviously I'm not giving up Washington DC but I'm not going to go back there in this book but I, I have a retired homicide detective who was the narrator in uh, City on the Edge oh, yeah. um, looking back as the kid and he's retired and moving has to move upstate because his dad who retired from the foreign service passed away and his brother who was tommy and, and city on the edge has a uh, major ptsd because of he was kidnapped in a, a country as a little boy and he's agoraphobic so he has to take care of his brother and obviously you have a retired homicide detective from any city that moves to a small town something bad has to happen so right. yeah. so then he's friends with uh with the chief in that small town because he would always go there to be with his dad and help his dad out and got to be friends with him so when something really bad happens um a string of very bad things then they ask for his help and he helps Wow, that sounds fantastic. I love the idea. And it's the title is based on The Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson in 1880. It's an epic poem about how you can like um, um I don't know if this will come into play, but I just like the title, but how you really can never hide from God. You can go anywhere in the world and you know and, and try to hide from him, but he knows where you are, you know. And um, so it's a, a a beautiful epic poem. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I like the idea that, you know, with all, all of your work, um, you get the sense that everybody's kind of existing in the same world. I like that too. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I that's... appreciate hearing that because, um, yeah, I, I do, they do revolve. I mean, DC police is, you know, like uh, they're way short now. I don't know how many members they have, but they're supposed to have like 5,000 members. But even with that kind of um, force, it's still very small, and you know so many people, and um, throughout, and it stays with you throughout your life. And I, I like the idea of that in the book too, where mm. you know, like Frank Marr and and Sweet Thing, and and then caring and um, Alexander probably would have known um, Graham Sanderson from City on the Edge. Um, he obviously would know him because he was homicide. But it's not brought up in you know, in sweet thing because I didn't have the idea for how to heaven when I was writing <laughs> sweet thing, or I would have brought him in there, right. like an idiot. I didn't, but um, yeah. So I love that, and thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, let's see, anything else we can discuss here? Um, do you have any any? Uh, will Frank Marr kind of be? A player going forward at all or not in how to have him but i i really 
Um, I mean, I get a lot of mail about Frank, and so obviously there's a little there. There's people that really like him and want to see him come back, and I'd I'd like to bring him back in something, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, where it's a full book with with Frank Marr, yeah. Right. Any any uh, any TV or uh, movie nibbles? Right now, um, uh, a murder at the end of the world, um, which open up opens up at Mysterious Bookshop in in New York City, and um, and ends up in Iceland. Um, I I really like that a lot, and yeah. I really went. I'm going through a Mike Flanagan thing right now the director you know house of usher and how yeah, yeah. the haunting of hill house and uh, i think that's what it's called and all that and um i already been we binged all of those you know yeah i, I like the i like the uh usher the fall of the house yeah show. it was really good really captures the mm -hmm. the vibe of poe well mm -hmm. yeah, yeah he's, he's a real stephen king fan and most of his stuff is based on stephen king work and but he's a real Edgar Allan Poe fan too. Would love you, to meet him one day. Are you aware of that project that Michael Connolly's working on right now? With um, mm -hmm. he uh, as a he he bought the rights to a book that came out earlier this year about the death of Edgar Allan Poe and kind of looking at it as a, a possible homicide. Mm. Um, and he's done a do he's doing a documentary about that. You know with you know, contemporary cops kind of looking at the evidence. Oh, that's uh, cool. Fascinating story. Is, where is it going to stream or air? I'm not entirely sure yet. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. But um, it seems like, was it Netflix who did The Fall of the House of Usher? Yeah, but he ended up, um, I don't know if they fell out. I don't think they had a falling out, but uh, his next next thing, which is also based on a Steve, Stephen King novella and um, the life of flight or something, I can't, I don't remember. Uh, that's going to be uh, hit on Amazon Prime. Okay, cool. Right. Well, David, it's been great talking with you. I'll let you yeah. go. Um, we always get off on these interesting little uh, digressions, which I, you know, I love. Mm -hmm. Especially music. You know. Yeah, especially music. But um, everybody check out Sweet Thing. We have signed copies here at the Poison Pen. And um, I'll be talking with you soon, David. Thank you so much, Patrick. Have a great thank night. Thank you all for listening. Okay, right. bye. Take care, bye-bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.